This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Tonight I have the pleasure to be here with a longtime heroine of mine, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. So Gwendolyn Midlow Hall is the award-winning author of many articles and multiple books, including Africans in Colonial Louisiana, the development of Afro-Creole culture in the 18th century, and slavery in African ethnicities in the Americas, recovering the links, as well as the editor of A Black Communist in the Freedom Struggle, The Life of Harry Haywood. Midlow Hall is Professor Emerita of Latin American and Caribbean History at Rutgers University. She is a lifelong political activist and spent 15 years researching and creating the Louisiana Slave Database, now accessible as part of Slave Biographies, Atlantic Database Network. She was the wife and collaborator of communist organizer and writer Harry Haywood. Her new book, Haunted by Slavery, a memoir of a Southern white woman in the freedom struggle is forthcoming from Haymarket Books in March 2021. So Dr. Midlow Hall, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. And I love to talk to people, all of whom are the younger generation for me. And I, it's a thrill to me to see that scholarship is moving in the direction to some extent and I feel that scholar that real scholarship is so important because it gives people hope absolutely it's it's been one of the, the, the things that it, that's getting me through this uh, this time right now and confidence another And I, I got the chance to read Dr. Midlow Hall's new book. Um, it was just an incredibly amazing, inspiring story, um, but truly real in every sense of the word. Uh, I'm so glad I got the chance to read it. And as I read it, I realized that you and I actually have quite a bit in common. Like you, I was born near the Gulf. You were born in New Orleans. Uh, me about half an hour to an hour away in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, in the very same Forest General County Hospital that you mentioned in the conclusion to your book. Uh, you suffered from being the daughter of a sonless, you know, misogynist father uh, who tried to control both your education and your career path to some extent, as well as your sexuality. Um, I, I did as well. And like you, I had at best a strained relationship with my mother 
um, which finally ended after I had children, uh, including a black son. And so it, it, this was this was an incredibly personal book to me. Um, I always knew about your scholarship um, and to some extent about your activism, but I didn't realize your your incredibly rich personal life. And so I wanted to start out just talking a little bit about your childhood, growing up white and Jewish in New Orleans, you know, and what that meant for your social and political development. Uh, you were the child of, of a civil rights lawyer who helped many of the black activists of the time. And so can you just give us some insight as to how that childhood really shaped your radical internationalist worldview from a very early age? Well, yes, that's a pretty big story but I'll try to keep it down to as few words as possible. Um, my father, which is now part of, but it was part of the Tsarist Empire. They didn't live in a small town agricultural community like Anatov. They a very active, industrializing town with a lot of uh, rail communication throughout Europe. And the family all takes, they lived in a very small house. With lots of, my father came from a family of 16 people, children, and only six of them survived childhood. The rest of them pretty much starved to death. Uh, he, he was born with rickets and was crippled all his life, vitamin deficiencies. Uh, his family was involved, very much involved in Marxist Jewish politics, radical revolutionary politics that fought for the rights of the most oppressed. And they were not in, in looking Jews. They were international. They weren't to have solidarity with workers everywhere in the world. Now, they were, this group was called the Jewish Labor Bund. And it's not people, not many people realize this, but the Eastern European Jews pretty much and Bundists. And when they, when people were, the Few people who survived the Holocaust either went to Israel, Mount Zionists tended to go, or they came to the East, and that's where the Buddhists tended to go. So that it was not unusual that that Jews who came to the United States were Buddhists. Uh, my 
fam, my family was 94 years months before World War I broke out. And they were always opposed to racism. That was the fact that was the impact of the boom. And the most about writing when he became a lawyer. And he represented the labor movement that was being, and that's how I got my early education. Because the labor, one thing that we still have to is that the amount of political repression and tyranny and violence and this has always been extreme compared to other parts. I don't mean that we didn't have violence other places, but in the South, it has always been the very first. And that's one of the things that still drags the country back. Forty percent now. How be a red with forty percent black and oppressed and poverty to the point where they really can't can just bear. And this this country is never going to get a speech until we deal with this. Because once we deal with these states are heavily black, and it's going to be like George, where if we go out out there and really give people and encourage them to register and vote, then we can change the whole country. And that goes along I really... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, one of the things you talk about in your book, this goes along with very much, um, in October of 1946, you attended the Southern Youth Legislature in Columbia, South Carolina, where you actually sat on the stage right behind W.E.B. Du Bois uh, as he delivered one of my favorite speeches that he ever wrote, um, and probably one of my favorite speeches throughout all of American history, Behold the Land. And And in it, he talks about the enormous opportunities in the South for a new nation, a new economy, quote, a new culture, really new and not a mere renewal of an old South of slavery, monopoly and race hate. And of course, he talks about achieving this through uh, a coalition of different races, of of Blacks, combining together with poor whites and and Native Americans and anybody else in a labor-based class coalition. And that's something that you write about a lot as well. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, I must say that Du Bois inspired me and not just his marvelous message. And I'm so happy that you know that speech because it was not known hardly at all. And there's a, a, web, a very important website called Black 
blackhistory.org or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a whole section of black speeches and famous speeches by black figures. And they didn't even have that Du Bois speech. And so I, I told them, look, you have to mount this speech on your website. And they, that was about 10 years ago. But anyway, aside the content of that speech, Herbert Aptiker also spoke at that convention, and he was, this was slightly after he first published his books on uh, African slavery votes. And all of this information was just the opposite of what I had been taught my whole life in school. I mean, what I had been taught that blacks loved slavery. <laughs> They really enjoyed being slaves, and they loved their masters, and that it was the upper class who enlightened about race, but it was the poor. Poor white who closed. And this was everybody was taught, and everybody was supposed. And in the South that I grew up in, which was quite a bit earlier than you did, you had to believe what you were told. I mean, that was the most oppressive environment you can imagine. And if you didn't believe what that, you know, it was practically your life that was at the end. So you. No freedom of thought, none whatsoever. And when I attended that conference and I heard Du Bois speak, and I heard Herbert Aptheker speak, I realized what a powerful and what a powerful thing history is. And if we tell, we study the real history and study the real people who are involved in this history instead of just the great heroes on horseback. That we can have real faith in the future. And that that's what inspired me to believe in the future of the United States. And it has held up for me my whole life, no matter what happened here, I always have believed in the American people. And even at this, right, at this, my son was telling me that he was afraid that Trump was going to win and that if he didn't win, there'd be civil war. I said, no, that's none of that's going to happen. He's going to lose it and there won't be a civil war. He says, well, how do you know that, Mom? I said, and Aww. I think that was just inspiration of that, my early being exposed to such thinkers. Yeah, that's amazing. You wrote about that moment that you do credit with, with you learning about the power of history. You said, Du Bois implored this large audience of talented young people representing a broad range of organized Southern Negro youth not to abandon the South. He emphasized the international movement against colonialism and racism. And, you know, 
Another myth that's always told about the South is that it isn't radical, that there weren't slave revolts, which, of course, you have shown how many there were all over the place, um, that there wasn't, you know, all of this grassroots organization from the time of emancipation, you know, all the way up to today. It is it is always those of us who lived in the Deep South, uh, who come from the Deep South, we know that it is a hotbed of radicalism and really could be awakened to be probably the most radical place in the entire nation. Um, and you have certainly lived this life throughout uh, being in, in the communist, having being a, the wife of Harry Haywood, who is a pr very prominent member of the Communist Party. Um, how do you see class and labor working today um, and how radical do you think the Deep South could be politically? Well, I think that here's my optimistic self, okay? I think that it's like teaching. You know, what teaching is, is encouraging people to believe in themselves and believe that the life has possibilities and hope, not just uh, defeat and despair. And I think that in the South, we can get beyond these feelings of despair. And I really believe strong that point. People are going to be are beginning to see, look, how did we get, how do we have all these red states in the, in the Deep South? None of the Deep South states should be red. But nevertheless, that's how it is. And even though black people fought and died for the vote, their votes have not counted. After all these years, their votes have not counted. But for the sake of all of us, we belong to the elite or something. For the sake of all of us, we have to get out there and say the black vote as to count. And if we do that, like, like they've done in Georgia, if we do that in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, if we do that, and it's doable, it's not that it can't be done, it's doable if people understand how important it is, and they're willing to go out there and do it. And that can completely change the picture of this country. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually living in Georgia right now. So living through the thick of it and we're, you know, we're about to have the big Senate runoff. So it, it's, you know, seeing it in real time, living this real history. Um, I'm, I'm 40 years old and this is the first time my vote has ever counted in this state. So it's, it's been, you know, it, it's as horrible as the last few years have been, you know, Georgia right now is giving, I think all of us across the South, some hope. Um, you, you started your career off as an activist before you became an academic. And I just wanted oh, yeah. to know, looking back now, do you wish that you had devoted more time to either activism or academics, or do you see them as completely intertwined? 
Well, I think they are largely intertwined. And I think that a lot of what I did in academia was exactly what I talk about teaching, is to encourage people to believe in themselves and to believe that they can change the world. So it's not a vast difference. I, I have no regrets about the time I devoted to either because... You know, there were times when the politics was not going to get anywhere. And during those times, I emphasized the scholarship because that scholarship was something I could always do, you know. Didn't matter what anybody else did. I could always do the scholarship. And even if it didn't get the recognition for 20 years, it was still there. And it did get recognition in 20 years. I can't hear you. I can't imagine. Better? I can't imagine what yes. the field of history was like when you entered into it and, and began your coursework. Um, as bad as it is now, how much worse it was when you were there as a woman. Uh, what kind of sexism were you really up against? Well, first of all, women were not supposed to be historians. That's period. And it was a male profession, period. And especially the branches of history that I was interested in, like slavery, which was a big thing for me. Slavery was a closed male profession. And gradually over time, there were a few women who got in who had chosen male patrons and who male patrons controlled what they thought and what they wrote about in order to be accepted. And I was the only woman who I knew of who didn't pay any attention to that and just did what I thought needed to be done. And believe me, it took years, long years, before I got recognition for what I was doing. So I think that the New York Times 1619 project is absolutely brilliant. And it was very much needed to correct the general historical narrative of the U.S.'s long history of slavery and racism. Um, but there was one part of the criticism um, by you know, many of these white scholars. You know, I, I personally believe most of it was not uh, credible, but there was one part of their criticism that I thought deserved more attention. And that was that scholars like Victoria Bynum, who of course wrote about the free state of Jones and um, Adolph Reed Jr. Um, pointed out that every time that black Americans had fought for civil rights within American history, you know, it was an interracial movement. Now, there have always been white allies and accomplices, and your own life story is testament to this. So what do you think, why do you think there's almost a near erasure of this interracial solidarity in our history and in and, and the stories that we tell about this nation? I think it's manipulation from above. 
I think it's deliberate manipulation to try to keep blacks and whites separate and to avoid solidarity. And the real answer is what Du Bois emphasized is that it has to be an alliance among people who are the most oppressed. And it's not a racial thing. It's not, it's to a great extent, it's a black thing, but it's not a purely racial difference. And I really believe that when people realize this fundamental truth, that that's going to be the basis for making real progress. That's what I keep saying is as is much amazing work as Stacey Abrams is doing there. She needs so many white emissaries to go out in these primarily white communities and explain yeah. to people, you know, what policies would do to change their life, to get them out of poverty. And um, and I even believe that if we if we relate, uh, you know, if we intertwine policies that will lift all Americans out of poverty with reparations for American slavery, that even reparations might be supported by a, a decent percentage of white people. Yes, I think so too. And uh, we might, I, I know this is not well received, but there may even be reparations for white people for deprivation of land and and for forced labor among whites, I mean, we had whites on Changyang. Right, right. And, and of course, what we've seen this summer with all of the protests, I think, uh, again, is something that we've seen in every civil rights era in this in this country's history um, is also the intertwining of black and indigenous movements. Yes. And it has been completely inspirational to see that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think that Latino is very important too. Native American and Latino. And to a great extent, the Latino is Native American. You know, this is one thing that just burns me up about people like Trump and his followers saying that uh, Mexicans are foreigners. <laughs> well, the Mexicans are less foreign than practically anybody else in the United States because they're about 40% Native American genetically and culturally more than that. And you look at Central Americans, you know, like a the Central, uh, Central Americans are Maya and speak various Maya languages. And so it, 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 we have to understand this relationship, too, between Native American and Latin American, because that, that goes a very, very long way. So essentially, in the United States, we all talk about this, and it's certainly true that we move that. The majority of children are non-white now. They're from various non-white ancestry. And this is only gonna increase over time. And so we have to, one thing that history has to do 
is to teach each other our history and how our history intertwines and how we learn from each other and profit from our relationship with each other instead of having a very narrow identity. That's beautiful, and it's something I'm trying to to keep in mind a lot lately. Um, to to hold on to hope, and and of course these these next few months are going to be horrible for a lot of people, and specifically a lot of Americans, because as you well know, uh, we are one of the only uh, developed nations in the world without any kind of universal health care or even uh, so-called rights to health care. Um, you have had the fortune to live fortune in some ways, and in some ways you were fleeing the FBI, but you have lived all over the world um, and in many different countries. You Mexico home, um, but I know New Orleans is, is always dear in your heart. What are your ideas about being an expat right now? What is it like watching America from afar? I don't know. I just don't feel like I just feel like I've been a more intense part of Native America than most parts of the United States. I just don't see the borders. I have no feeling that there is a border. And do you get to talk with many of your neighbors there about their feelings of what's happened in America? Well, unfortunately, because of COVID, I don't talk to anyone except the people who look after me. And then uh, today I had a dentist who came over and I talked to him a little bit, but not much. And then my son comes, but he keeps his distance. So that's a little bit of a handicap. And before COVID, I had friends who I could talk to more and go out with sometimes. But that's been a long time. I almost forgot when I could go out. Well, I know one of the things that you uh, have talked about, you're glad the study is changing around poor whites. And as we were talking a bit before this interview, I told you that there are a lot of uh, young up and coming scholars that will be publishing books on poor whites and working class whites within the South. And so uh, I wanted to just bring up the fact that in 1963 and 1964, there actually was a discussion in SNCC, SNCC, about poor yeah. white organizing, a poor white organizing project. Yeah. And it had it had sufficient sufficient support um, from the leadership there. But, you know, once they really looked into whether or not they could create a political alliance, what they found was that these poor whites were so desperately poor, so impoverished that they just needed the basic necessities of life. They needed electricity. They needed plumbing. They needed, um, you know, enough uh, living wage, enough to buy groceries um, that they couldn't organize them politically due to 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 their poverty. Do you think about how COVID is going to, um, and particularly the, the racial inequalities embedded in COVID in America, um, how is that really going to impact the kind of coalition building we're hoping to start, um, you know, when come six months, 
you know, there's going to be a large section sector of Americans that are just living in abject poverty. Well, I think that we have to think more about Dr. Martin Luther King's last years in which he had campaigns against. It was not just race. It was poverty. And I really believe that we have to go beyond race. Talk about the extent of poverty in the country and encourage the organization of people of all races, regardless, who are poor and who need to be in, in organized and encouraged. And, you know, one thing I want to say is that the reason why we've had to put up with this horribly distorted history is that and that so much history has been written on a higher level and ignoring local history is that you scratch local history almost anywhere and you find that people resist. You know, a lot of people figure, you know, if I'm going to die anyway, I might as well die fighting. And that's been a tradition in the United States. And, and, and so historians can play an enormous role in teaching and encouraging the organization of poor people. I, I definitely agree with you there. And I think that events like this, where historians are talking and getting their ideas out to the general public are so important. So I'm so grateful that, that you're willing to, to share your knowledge and your wisdom with, with us. I lost your voice. Whoops. Oh, there. Sorry. So okay. as I was advertising on Twitter, um, I had a lot of your fans pop up just expressing their deep admiration for you. One young man was literally defending his dissertation this week at Tulane and talked about uh, how influential your work has been on his and that his work wouldn't be possible without yours. Looking back at all of the historians, I mean, the generation now of historians that you have influenced, um, you know, students and the general public, how proud does that make you? It makes me very happy. I wouldn't say proud. That's probably too hard a word. But it makes me very happy and encouraged. And I want to encourage other people to do the same thing. And especially women, because that's what it always struck me. Um, I mean, I loved your work as well, but it, it was so important. I was at a you know, primarily overwhelmingly male institution. And to just know that there were female scholars out there doing amazing research and, and, and especially doing the kind of pathbreaking research that you did in the digital humanities, um, you know, which is 
probably really the hottest field of history today. I don't know how many people know that you you were a pioneer in digital history. So can you talk a little bit about first using computers and, and teaching yourself? Well, let me say that I'm still very active in computers. Slavery databases. So I'm on three different major projects with that. For one thing, I'm working on completing the Louisiana slave database for throughout the period of slavery, which is an enormous project. But there are people out there who are dying to do them. You know, every from every parish, they're just thrilled at the idea of doing this, and they want to do it. And so I've, what I've been working on is a, a simplified database entry project on the web that will make it easy for people to do to expand the database themselves. Um, I think that in terms of the database work, well, let me start with computer work. I was one my department at Rutgers bought some computers in 1980. And these were dedicated word processors, which were not very good for word processing and they couldn't do anything else. But that's how we started out. They were called display writers. And I think that's what they were called. I don't even remember anymore. So I saw this and I said, oh, my God, that's just what I need. And I ended up by putting all of my work on it within a few days time and organizing it on it. And the chairman of my department said, when you were the last person I thought would be interested in computers, I said, why? He says, because you're so humanistic. And, and I said, there's nothing more humanistic than, than getting away from doing terribly hard work that doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up by putting all my work on the computer. I couldn't get access to it because it was so I bought my own computer, which was a big waste of money because it was not very good. And I taught myself how to use it. And when I discovered all of these, this information about slaves in the courthouses that wasn't even supposed to exist, and it was so complicated, I decided, well, I can't put this on, on cards. I'll never be able to figure it out, and I'll lose everything. So I... Learn. I asked a colleague to show me how to, and I started that out in 1984. So that was one of the earliest projects. It, it was an original digital project. And what that means is that I worked directly with manuscript documents and entered data from the documents directly into the computer. In other words, I wasn't entering stuff from published, published books or articles or anything. So it was the first original digital database. 
in history in the his in history, and scholars didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. The genealogists went crazy over it because I copied, insisted on copying all of the names. And my partner was telling me, don't take time to copy names because it's going to slow you down. And I said, then it'll just have to slow me down because I am going to copy every name that's on these documents, which I did. And that's what made it usable by genealogists. So, you know, the scholars were just interested, the male scholars were just interested in doing uh, uh, calculations, quantitative calculations, and they didn't see the slaves as individual human beings with names and relationships. So I insisted on the names, and that's what made the databases really take off. And it's still mainly genealogists who are interested in these. Not too many scholars have used them. Some scholars have used them, but the genealogists have used them all along. Mm-hmm. And they, they've also been used in public history, though, as well, because your database, of course, greatly influenced and really um, it provided the foundation of, of knowledge for the Whitney Plantation Museum. Oh, yeah, true. Yes, that was public scholarship. Well, that was through Ibrahim Hasek, who, by the way, I met in, I met in Dakar, Senegal. In 1993, when I gave a lecture to a group of high school teachers, he was teaching high school then, and when my lecture was over, he asked me if he could have a copy, if I could get him a copy of the lecture. So I just handed it to him because I could print out an published and he became he got his PhD at the University of Dakar and then he he moved to uh, New Orleans and he became the research director of the Whitney plantation where he's doing a fantastic job. It is so important, so I think. Anyway, you see, go ahead. I, I just love that that your work has influenced um, public history because I do think that that is the key. I mean, we need the scholarship on one level, but we also need to then get the scholarship out to the people in a way that everyone can understand it and make sense of it. Right. You know, I think that that the impact on African-American genealogy has been enormous. And it's been so important because these genealogists, you know, they want to know about their own families, but then they want to know more. They want to know the times that their families lived in and the places where they lived and what relationship they had to other people. And a lot of them, of course, are blood relatives of the masters. 
Right. So we're starting to get some questions in from uh, fans that are watching right now. And we've got one in from Errol A. Henderson. And he asks, uh, Harry Haywood stayed with John Watson of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers for a time in Detroit, but the League didn't draw on Haywood's thesis. Do you think his thesis is relevant today? Yes, I do. Not as in any rigid way. I'm not even sure that it's true that John Watson did not draw on Harry. I knew John Watson very well. And he was certainly a socialist. And his the film that he made he finally got the news. Does anybody know that film? You, do you know it? I don't. I'll have to look that up. Okay. Watch that film and you you will Harry did have an influence on Watson there too. Harry had a big influence on the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. He was there for years, for the whole time the League was there. The other thing I loved about your book was that you touched on something that every woman academic, I think, or woman writer or any woman who's married to or the partner of an academic or writer knows all too well. And that's the fact that many of uh, and many of the male authors or academics throughout time have essentially had uh, someone, their, their partners, uh, work as editors, work as research assistants, and sometimes even work as co-writers or even some in, in some of your cases as the primary writer. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, when you were young coming up and, and the place of women, the role of women, and the fact that you did have to hide some of your scholarship um, under Harry's name? Well, when I was coming up, I never believed that women could accomplish anything on their own. You know, I was trained that way. That's the way I was taught. And, and I really did not have the confidence in myself that I inspired to instill on other people now, you know. And so I didn't believe that I could accomplish anything on my own. But I thought that the only way I'd accomplish anything in the world is by marrying a man who had a big impact and I could give him support in the background. And that was a pattern in those days. Uh, and I followed that pattern for about 10 years, and then it got to the point where I couldn't go on doing that because I had a lot of my own ideas, and I started having differences with Harry over things, which, you know, I was not clashing with him over ideas. But I did want you know, I started becoming a historian, and he wasn't sure that he, that historians had any particular purpose in life. You know, to him, it was Marxist theory that counted, and history was not important. And he would ha he had to be reluct very reluctantly convinced that history could have any importance. 
problems whatsoever. I mean, I mean he would speak disparagings of his of his and I was always my all my instinct was always to be a historian. And so I had to defend myself eventually against that role. Right. You you have um, you've come out in this book and, and explicitly said which of the writings, either co-writings or things that he took primary primary ownership, authorship of were a lot you know, of your ideas and your actual writing as well. Yeah, well, some of that, you know, it was Harry had his Harry was a brilliant man who had some very important ideas. And it was important. I don't regret I did help him. And we're, at, we're, we're actually getting a couple more questions. At the time when it was that these Okay. Um, it says, do you think the issue of cultural revolution and the manner that you and Haywood debated with Harold Cruz in Soul Book is relevant today, especially a cultural revolution among white Americans? I'm not sure I understand the question, but this is the best I can do to answer. I don't agree with, with Cruz, and I think I agree with me and Harry when it came to analysis of the black bourgeoisie because Cruz that the only leaders of the black had to be the black bourgeoisie whereas Harry emphasized the black working class as a leader and I agree with Harry that's the black working class and we've got one more coming from Craig Dawson. And he says, do you think Martin Luther King Jr. would approve of the modern concept of critical race theory? I have to say, I don't know. I know, I know what critical race theory is, but at the moment, I can't think of what it is. I can't think it's so it's hard. I can't really answer it unless somebody reminds me of what critical race theory is. Can you, how about, could you answer, do you, it sounds like your view of African-American black history in general is a view of progress, even though there are very violent and dark times and you have hope for the future. Um, you really think that there, there will be a time in America where there is racial and class equity at some point in the future? Yes, that's an easy answer. The answer is yes. I don't think it's going to come easy. It's going to be a lot of struggle. But my view of the United States is there's two extremes. There's been extreme repression and exploitation, but there's also been extreme resistance. And these are in, have been in conflict throughout history. But my faith is in the resistance and the creation of something better. 
And so you write incredibly honestly about how being a mother profoundly affected your work, as well as your own feelings uh, of, of failure as a mother, you know, and that's common, I think, among everyone who's a parent, but particularly among mothers. And, um, you know, it's so hard to balance a career and then you were raising your children a lot of times by yourself. It seems like you had so many people to take care of and so many, so little help from other people in your caretaking duties. So, you know, combining that with the constant surveillance and harassment by the FBI and others, did you ever go through moments of deep depression or anxiety or real, you know, worry about about yourself and your safety? And if so, how did you get through those moments? I have to say that I'm just very weird person, and maybe I'm totally unrealistic, but I've always been very calm and very happy. I've never been depressed, and I've always believed in myself and in my children. Although it's absolutely true that I felt guilty for years about not taking about what I could not do for them. And they never understood why I couldn't do these things for them. They had no idea the handicaps I was working under. And I didn't want to try to explain it to them because there was no way to explain it. But uh, I don't regret being a mother. I think I've left my children with something of value both my daughter and my son, Haywood. I managed to take care of my mentally ill son for 50 years to keep him off the street and to keep him in reasonably good circumstances. And that was a job. I mean, that was probably the most difficult thing of all. I'm proud of my children. And my son, Haywood, has been wonderful to me. And he looked after me as well as anybody could. And he's most most competent at doing so. And, and I have a wonderful relationship with that I child who has come to appreciate me. And and looking and looks after me. That's that's so wonderful to have, and I can I can see um, just the joy in your face as you speak about them. So, given all of the events over the past four years and the rise of Trump and all of the racism and xenophobia and hatred that he has stirred up, what do you see as a path forward? For Americans, what should white Americans specifically and, and white Southerners specifically be doing to clean up the mess that we made? You know, I don't know who this we is. I think that between 35 and 40 percent of Americans after this Trumpian insanity. And it's clear from this, the last election that 
a very substantial number of Americans has not gone for it. And I've even taken heart in the way the election was defended, including by Republican governors and secretaries of state, even in your state, right? In other words, there are, and, and judges, including Trump appointed judges, there are people in the United States who are professional and part of their profession, fundamental part of their profession has been to seek the truth. And, and they don't give up on that. It's very hard to push these people into doing something that Trump is trying to push them into doing and they won't do it. And that to me is very heartening. So that I think that we need to say, okay, we've got crazy people here and we should try to communicate with them if we can. But if we can't, there's the rest of us who are not crazy. So let's move forward. Right. Because as you were talking about with the demographic shift in America, you only need a small percentage of white people to do the right thing. Um, and and I think but that is a very a large. I think it's a small percentage of whites. I think it's a pretty decent percentage of whites who want to do the right thing. No, I agree with you. And I have complete hope, especially for the, the younger generation. And you see that that demographic sh uh, shift, um, you know, especially among younger white women. Right. Yes. Well, I taught some young students when I was at Michigan State. Well, I mean, I went there in 2010 and I left in 2014. And I still have very good relationships with some of the students I taught. One of them's going to come visit me soon. And I was just so thrilled to find that they really think, you know, that they really want to think for themselves. And they are not prejudiced. They're not full of all of this horrible stuff that was ingrained in us in, in my generation. And so that also gives the younger generation mm -hmm. gives me hope. I got along so well with so that I was teaching them how to think and not just teaching them to learn to remember things. Right. Right. It's, and that's such an important, critical skill, uh, especially now with with, um, you know, people tell our leadership telling us not to believe what we see or what we hear. So, again, those critical thinking skills that that teachers across America have have imparted in, our, in this younger generation uh, has been put to good use. Um, I know you loved your time teaching and you started out teaching at a very small school in North Carolina. Can you tell us a little bit about your years there? Oh. Yes, well, that was where I, this was in 1965, which was the most violent year of the civil rights movement in the South. And the Ku Klux Klan was just spreading all over the place and trying to murder and intimidate the 
And I taught students at a at a rural black college in Northeast North Carolina. And I really learned how to teach there. Because the teachers learn questions and learn the pat answers to the questions and we give the answers back to the teachers. And I taught them to think. And they were so thrilled at being taught to think that they really listened. Wait a minute, I'm saying something. Okay. I actually, on the last day of class, when the when summer school was starting, summer vacation was starting, I taught very simple things. We got to the civil rights movement. And I said, there's two approaches to dealing with the Ku Klux Klan. There's Martin Luther King's approach, passive resistance, and there's Robert Edwards' armed self-defense against the Ku Klux Klan. I didn't say another word. The students didn't have to read the book. They didn't have to see the book. They got the message. They came back after first summer classes. They signed up my course in my first day your Robert Williams method works and then later on I thought I was told that they sent spies into the clan meetings white who were sent into the clan meeting under the clan hoods and they had tape recorders and so they recorded all the information that was going on in the meeting. They told the black students when and where the next Klan meeting. And so the students showed up and pulled the streets off of the Klan's. And it took about four years of armed struggle in Northeast North Carolina. The students finally drove out the Ku Klux Klan. Complete news blackout. I didn't even know until I found out from a historian at Robert Williams' funeral who told me he studied these North Carolina State Police archives and they explained what happened. That was such an incredible story, and it's one of my favorite parts of your new book. Of course, guys, it's going to be out in March of 2021, so just a few months. Go ahead and pre-order yours now. You can be a great holiday gift. You can just write it in a card to somebody that you've pre-ordered it for them. Um, we've got a question from Bridget Tobin. Uh, she says, I live in a Democrat-led city in the South. Racial inequality is still rampant here. How can we help the, quote, white liberals and or, quote, white moderates to understand how class and race intersect? Well, I 
think that we just have to sit and just go from place to knocking on doors with the mask and it's talking to people and people are very receptive. You from COVID, maybe with COVID they will, I don't know. But we have to find a way of communicating. If we can't do it door to door, then we have to do it online. People are not stupid. And they're not vicious. I'm not saying people, most people are decent. And most people are intelligent. And they are willing to listen and learn. But we have to teach them. So we have to, or that's, it's that simple. It's, it really is. That's such a huge key, I think, to all of this is education. You know, there's a reason that, uh, especially within the South, um, and especially among you know high percentage Black areas in the South, that education is underfunded, or poor white areas in the South, that in- education is underfunded. They don't want people to know certain things, not only about our history and our long history of resistance, as you put it, but um, also about uh, the history of interracial coalitions. And I was just wondering, I know we'll wrap things up soon. Um, We so appreciate your time, but who are some of the writers that you read right now or historians um, that that you have learned from in the last few years? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I didn't hear you right. No problem. Who who do you read right now? Are there any scholars or histories that you have enjoyed reading over the past few years? I enjoyed reading your history. That's the most recent history I read. And that was really quite interesting. But I think you've just touched the surface. And there'll be a lot more scholars going going to have to go and really which I it really was an ongoing civil war between poor and slave holders. And that's repressed that nobody talks about. Right. You wanna meet them? <laughs> Is this your son? My son who just showed up here. Oh great. She just put me on here a little bit. I don't know if you can see me. Yes. I'm just going to say hi for a minute. Hi, how are you? Can you hi. see me? I can't see you. I think I can see your hand, but yeah, hi. there you are. Oh, well, she was talking so lovingly about you. She just glowed when she was talking about you. So sweet yeah, to see. She always you know, if I was a Tiller the Hun, she'd think the same thing. <laughs> that's what mom did. Yeah. See, that's that's exactly why I wanted sons. So I can have that someday. Oh, well, yeah, I can see how proud you are. So I know you're still working on several books, you said right now, um, one probably for LSU Press. Can you tell the people um, um, what you see yourself doing over the next few years? Uh, Well, I I'm trying to just. Do it one year at a time, okay? Next few months. How about that? Okay. Uh, um, I 
think the most was, and it's partially that I have to relearn how to use SPSS, which stands for Statistical Package in Social Sciences. And it was taken over by IBM. And I hate IBM. Because they make more and more complicated. And so they have new versions all the time that you have to relearn. So I can't turn to that until I get these other things, urgent things out the way. And do you ever get the chance to read any non-history? Do you, do you read American papers at all or, or um, fiction? Oh, yes. In fact, for a long time, I was so happy that at last in my life I could le read literature. I read, I have, uh, what's this thing, the book stuff? From Amazon. Oh, the Kindle, it? where you read online, Kindle? Yeah, I have a Kindle. And I have, I can read it online too, and, and also in the little gadget. And I've been reading Russian literature. I've started reading British literature, which I had read some of, but not so much. And I've, I've read and I read just about everything that that Mark Twain ever wrote. I've been reading a lot of Dickens. Uh, I like classical literature. I don't keep up with the latest publications because you know maybe some of them are good and some of them aren't. But if I really want to read something that I know is good. Then I'll read it, read Clarence. I must say that the British literature, I don't know. I get tired of reading about the British upper class. You and me both. That was the I, one area I didn't I, like. I didn't enjoy all of that. Um, but that that's great to hear you read the, the Russian classics again. That's amazing. Um, I know we're kind of wrapping up a little bit, but I, I wanted to ask you about growing up in New Orleans and the kind of vibrant musical culture you must have been, you know, privy to and you know what just what that was like. So, well, the, of course, and every there would be trucks open in the back with mainly black musical in, in musical groups playing, and, and of course, on on our. But New Orleans was nice because you would have. Parades well, down the street, no matter where you live, right in front of your house, you'd have parades of musicians going and dancing on any other, and even not an occasion, just because people were out there dancing. And do you still get to listen to any of that old music? Uh, 
Do you still get to listen to any of the old New Orleans music? Oh, yes, I do. And I can do, you know, you can hear and read just about anything on the internet. Oh, I should mention that I read French literature, too, in French. That's right. You speak so many languages fluently, and that always helped uh, your speaking career, I know, as you toured the world giving talks specifically um, about slavery and, and throughout the Atlantic world. Um, and you were certainly one of the pioneers of that. Yeah. Um, I've been, I try to read literature in Spanish. But I have harder time with that than with than reading literature with French. I think it's because I learned French first. Right, all those years you got to spend in Paris. Um, you were in your twenties then, correct? Yes. So it's just such a wonderful, amazing book. And I mean, just filled with uh, so many different vignettes from your life. And I can't wait to see the pictures that are going to go along with it. Um, this will be out, guys, in March of next year. You can go ahead and pre-order your copy from Haymarket Books. Um Dr. Midlow Hall, I am I am just again, I'm honored to have been able to meet with you tonight, see you in person. Uh, you have been a heroine of mine since graduate school and to know what an amazing life you had as an activist, you know, as well as as an academic is just utterly inspiring. So in, any last words you'd like to tell people before we sign off? Well, since you promoted my I book so well. Let me promote. You have written an, um, um, an enormously important book about poor whites in the South, and it really puts a spear into the one of the strongest ideological weapons that the Southern elite has had. Had. The idea poor whites and blacks ever got along, who were most had the most race hatred, and that's what I was taught, and that is absolutely false. Well, and thank so you so much. I, I'm going to put that on my CV now. So, <laughs> thank you. This has been a pleasure, uh, and thank you very much to Haymarket Books okay. for organizing this. You guys have a good night. Good night. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.